Hello everyone. Just a quick update before we get into it. This episode was recorded before That Distant Fire got a publishing deal. So you'll hear Kurt and JR tossing around ideas for how they want to expand their audience in the future. Well, I'm so thrilled to announce that That Distant Fire has signed a contract with Black Eye Books, a boutique publisher of alternative comics. In the interview, you'll hear my dudes singing Black Eye's praises before they even knew they were going to be part of the Black Eye catalog, so you know it's got to be good. That being said, I'd like to point all the listeners to Black Eye Books' Instagram page. Don't worry, it's just Black Eye Books, all one word, so it's not hard to find. Give them a follow so you can get their updates in your feed, and if you become a friend of Black Eye by signing up for their newsletter, you'll get all sorts of news, previews, and exclusive early bird discounts on upcoming crowdfunding books. You can sign up by following their link tree on Instagram, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes. On a last note, I'd like to extend a genuine congratulations to JR and Kurt for getting That Distant Fire picked up by such a fantastic publisher. Although, once you read it, you'll only be surprised that it took even this long for that to happen. Okay, now uh, on with the show. Greetings once again to our most enthusiastic fans. Welcome to another bonus episode of Collective Action Comics. Today's program is a special interview with the creative team behind the fantastic dystopian science fiction drama, That Distant Fire, currently being released on Instagram and at thatdistantfire.com. I'll let the creators speak for themselves, but believe you me, you're missing out by not keeping up with this comic. Let's tune in. What kind of a peace do I mean, and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world by American weapons of war. The force of communism has swept nation after nation into freedom. Communism clearly must be faced must be faced, must be faced, faced, faced. Mr. Nixon, what is the truth about communism? Well, first, we must recognize communism for what it is. Freedom from hunger, from disease, and a victory for the ageless hope of people everywhere. As Americans, we find communism to combat ignorance, poverty, and disease. We must therefore persevere in the search for peace, in the hope that constructive changes within the capitalist countries, which brings burdens and dangers, might bring within reach solutions which now seem beyond us. As good Marxist-Leninists, I think I should point out and publicly declare that everything is moral that is necessary for the annihilation of the old exploiting social order, order, order. and for uniting the proletariat. Among the many traits the peoples of our two countries have in common, none is stronger, 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 stronger. than our mutual abhorrence of the United States as nothing more than a distorted and desperate evil, which can only destroy and never, never create. create. So welcome, everybody, to one of our Collective Action Comics interview episodes. I'm here with Kurt Merlo and J.R. Huto, creators of That Distant Fire. Would you guys like to say hello? Introduce yourselves. I'm J.R. I'm the writer. My background is I'm a filmmaker and a writer. I think creatively, my big interests are 
dualities, bringing things, bringing opposing forces together. Generally, like I'd say, like some of those topics are like nostalgia and modernity, documentary versus lyricism. I think you'll see that a lot in That Distant Fire, those two things. I made a film a while back called Diamond on Vinyl that premiered at Slamdance, uh, went on to play in 70 countries on the festival circuit and on the Sundance channel. And uh, my day job is marketing films and series, so stuff like trailers and posters. Although like a long time ago, like when I was in college, I was actually trying to break into comics. So there's probably an alternate universe where I got to write Grendel tales. <laughs> Hell yeah. Kurt, would you like to introduce yourself? So I am Kurt Merlot. I'm an illustrator. I've been illustrating for since 2010, so that's almost, God, it's almost 12 years. And I do, so I make comics, I make art, art books and comics, and when I'm not making comics, I do commercial art mainly. I do illustrations for articles and newspapers and anything in the edit, editorial industry. But I do all kinds of different kinds of commercial art. But yeah, That Distant Fire is probably my seventh book that I've done in total. Something like that. But this is definitely the most robust and the biggest. And it's always been my dream to make a full-fledged graphic novel. And so I finally have the opportunity. So it's really fun to, to do. I'm, I'm a huge comic nerd. And this is just like a blast. So that's me. I love it. Hell yeah. I, I want to get into what comics we're all into, but first, uh, can you guys tell me a little bit about how you met? Yeah. Me. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> it's funny. So I had, I had written the, the film script version right of this and, you know, was basically feeling like, all right, I want to pivot, you know, and I, I really want to make this more as a comic book for lots of reasons. But I mean, first, cause comics was like, like my first love and I'd always wanted to do that, you know, also because it's just like, it's sci-fi and it's, I'm indie. So it's hard to like, think about how you're going to fundraise and do all mm -hmm. those kinds of things that you, the vision that you want to do. And so I spent a long time, I mean, several years, to be honest, looking for a collaborator. And I started going to, to comic conventions and kind of just walking up and down artist alley and looking looking for great work and then also, you know, trying to talk to people and, and get a feel and stuff. And I think it was 20, is it 2018? I, I feel like time is a flat circle now. 2018? Yeah, it is. WonderCon? Uh, yeah, it was the year, wait, no. It's 2018 it must or 2019? Must have been two years before the pandemic, right? Two no, years? It was, I think it was only one year before the pandemic. Okay, so 2018 then. No, yeah. no, 19. I don't know. Whatever. God some some WonderCon. Yeah, so I, I saw Kurt's work, you know, and it was awesome and just went over and hit, had a great conversation and kind of nabbed his card because I never brought up the card because like I think feel like I feel like that is the, the, the greatest meme is like you don't you, you don't want to be like, hey, so you make comics and I want to make a comic with you. <laughs> How about that? Right. I just started stalking Kurt and uh, and then I finally got up the guts to reach out and be like, all right, do you want to? I do have a project, but I'm not even going to tell you much about it because I know that's annoying. So <laughs> if you're interested in talking about it, let me know and maybe I'll take you out for coffee or something. I really appreciated the way that you approached me. I thought that was really cool. But yeah, we hit it off. It was really awesome. It was, it was love at first sight, I would say. That's right. That's my guy. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's um, yeah, it was cool. Like we just get along so well. So so what was, what was like the approach? Like perfect fit. Uh, well, it, just what he was saying, like he was just really respectful of my time and not being like pitching me right when he, you know, walked up to my table and this and that. Like we just like, yeah, we just kind of chatted first and got to know each other a little bit more. And then like, yeah, it just seemed like supernatural. But also I really liked talking to JR. I really liked hearing about when he did pitch me. Like it was really, it just sounded really cool. So it was like pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was also like, oh, wow, yeah, maybe I could actually do this. Like, this will be cool. We tried, I mean, it was also one of these things where I, you know, my approach and all the stuff that I've worked on, like, both, like, in my day job, but also in my, like, art-making practice is, like, I want everybody to feel like it's yours, you know? Like, it, as many people as are on a project, everybody on that project should feel like, this is our thing. It, you know, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not somebody else's thing. Every, and so you have to really, you want people to, you want everybody to feel like ownership and pride. And so I think part of that, like we spent basically, you know, we, if we met in March, right. I feel like we spent basically the whole summer kind of getting to know each other, feeling out what the book could be. Like we spent a long time just being like, what do the characters look like? What does the world look like? okay, now what do like, what does the frame look, what does the page look like when you actually start adding up different images together? So it was like a long process, mm-hmm. you know, of, of getting to know each other and then also fleshing out. And, and for me, just basically being like, dude, I'm going to rewrite whatever. We're going to, we'll, we'll make it together. Because otherwise you don't want, you want it to feel like we were talking about earlier. Like you never want to feel like any member of the team, and this is just a two-person team, but if it's a bigger team, whatever, is just a wrist. Mm-hmm. You you always want everybody to feel like it's it's ours, you know. And that's, so I think that's a big part of it. That is perfect. Like that is exactly what I loved about JR's approach. And like as an artist, it's you know, I get people all the time being like, "Oh, you should make this thing or I have this idea for a whatever." And then they ask me to do all this work when they haven't even done any of it. Mm-hmm. But I loved that JR had spent what, like three years, like working on this script. And then, the, and only when he felt like it was like perfect that he was like ready to like actually approach an artist. And not only that, like when it came down to actually doing the work, it wasn't just like, he's like, Oh, Hey, do this work. It was, he was sitting down with me, you know, meeting with me all the time. And mm-hmm. we were like going through it together. He was in the weeds. So it was cool. So essentially the opposite of what you said your experience uh, as a corporate artist has been. Yes, exactly. I mean, because, yeah, like I said, like they either want you to be a hired wrist, as JR said, um, or they just like throw a, an article at you from like a mile away and just say, okay, you do it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like there's either it's really hands on or it's really hands off. So. Yeah, hey, you're free. You do this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's money to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important. To, I mean, some of the best stuff, I mean, we were we're wrapping up the edit of, you know, the, the, uh, the right writing edit. I don't know what to call it, the chapter edit, whatever of the, mm-hmm. the, the last chapter. And we work together through figuring out like what parts need to get cut out, what parts need to get pumped up, what things need to change. So even though it's like, I mean, I did technically have a complete script, but it's not complete, right? Because it didn't have the other half of it. So mm-hmm. like Kurt, Kurt's the other half of it. And so we're rewriting it together. He's like, you know, in, in lots of ways, like 
he's my editor now, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah, and it's kind of funny because as I like am putting a quote unquote skin on your story, like it's kind of weird. I can't I, I never it hasn't really crossed my mind that you probably imagined it differently than the way that I'm doing it. I don't know why that's just like that thought came to my head right now as you're doing well, like talking. I'm like, oh wow, that's funny. Like JR probably had like a totally different vision for this than what I'm doing. Although like, yes, I love the way that you passed it to me and was like, hey, now make this yours, which is essentially what I'm trying to do. I think that's critical. I mean, to me, art that's team sports. So that's, you know, music, filmmaking, comics, if you're, if you're, collaborating on a comic and not just doing it yourself, things like that. To me, like the whole point of collaborating is to make it better. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and to get more than just your own narcissistic vision of what the thing is supposed to be. Um, yeah. Because it's always to me, other people contributing and, and again, making it their own is the thing that brings it to life. Otherwise it'll real feel in my opinion, for my own work, at least really stale, you know, because then it just mm. becomes so, labored over and precious and and you want it to feel alive and the way do you feel, make it how do you feel life you feel life uh, as we've seen in the last 18 months with other people mm-hmm. right you know community community is what brings life to things and so to me it's like just trying to find that in in your art making process that's what makes it exciting because it's because um, i don't know what i'm going to see necessarily when i get a page but i know it's going to be super exciting that's so funny man you know, I, I'm pretty sure I I became an artist because I'm extremely antisocial, <laughs> um, and I and I I love to draw because it's like something I could create like a world by myself, you know. And so I've never I haven't really done a whole lot of collaborating. You know, I say that with the caveat being that like literally my day job is like you know illustrating for what other people have written as an editorial artist but not in my own work my personal kind of like my private work has always been by myself so this is actually not to get to like therapy session but this is actually like really cool to like make something with someone else which is very new for me but something that's actually like I'm proud of it like it's really great if I don't say so myself mm-hmm. no that rules yeah it's really great to like to make things with someone else. Like JR was just saying, it's it's almost like therapeutics, sort of. That's actually great. If only there were some sort of parallel for community art making and making things better with left-wing politics. But, nah, you can't find it. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll keep searching. We, we'll have, keep we have the searching. whole rest of the podcast to find it. <laughs> right? So... Speaking of the comic, though, do we want to give the listeners just a brief rundown of what it's actually about? Yeah, sure. It's hard to, to point it, pin it down, but I'll give it a shot. So when I, when I first started working on it, people asked, I'd say, well, imagine America makes every bad choice possible over the next 15 years. <laughs> I think that's really hard for people to imagine. Yeah, right? Yeah. Oof. Um, what a stretch. At the time, at the time, everybody's like, this is unrealistic. And I'm like, well, that's the world that we're going we're gonna <laughs> to yeah. investigate. Um, so I think that like overall the goal was it's, it's really ground level, like salt of the earth sci-fi where, you know, it's, it's only, like I said, maybe, maybe 15 years out from now or something like that. And the story focuses on a married couple in their early thirties. They're also an engineering team and they're kind of, um, you know, building their own, their first 
big invention, right? And they're forced to move home to a rural area, you know, and move in with uh, one of them, uh, his, uh, his father uh, and sister. And that community that he grew up in is right on the precipice of a big agricultural labor uprising. So I think that overall, it's, I feel like the, the story is a pretty slow burn at times, for sure. I mean, no pun intended with the, with the title. Um, but it kind of gathers, gathers steam, as you might expect, as it moves along, you know, in terms of like the, that, how they, their lives kind of become enmeshed in that community. Um, and they have to kind of figure out like, you know, what's important, like the differences between their own personal ambitions, the safety of their family, and then the well-being of the, the larger community that they're a part of. It's kind of cool because actually, JR wrote this story. God, was it? Is it like five years ago now? Like how long ago? I, was I it? finished it. I. I it's just, this is a funny thing that I remember, but I literally finished it the day that Bernie announced his candidacy for presidency. Mm-hmm. So that was like May something, ah. twenty fifteen. Hell yeah! Like I, it, okay. I remember it specifically because I've like been a ardent Bernie guy for my my whole adult life, basically. And um, so, so I was like, second- oh, it's. It happened like the same day. This is great. Yeah. So like the second time he announced, wasn't that the second time or was that the first? 20, I think 2015. Yeah. That was the first time. Oh, yeah. oh, it was when he was, because okay. later on, I think is when um, Hillary Clinton announced. Um, oh, gotcha. Yeah. I think he was one of the early, if I remember correctly, he was one of the early people that threw the, threw the hat in. Well, what's okay. But going, going back to what I was saying is so fascinating because uh, he wrote this story in two or he finished in 2015, but it's actually like the topics and the story has only become more and more relevant, especially mm-hmm. in the last like two years. Like, and like Jarrah and I kind of like kicking ourselves sometimes or pinching ourselves. I don't know what you would say of, mm-hmm. of um, being, of, of saying to ourselves, you know, like this is crazy. Like this is almost like prophetic. Like what you're, stuff you're writing about is just becoming more and more relevant. It's really interesting. It's bizarre. Well, what it shows to me is a, a clear understanding of the mechanisms of capitalism. You know, in sure. in Capital Volume 1, Marx predicted pretty much exactly what was going to happen, is that more and more people would accumulate wealth, and then less and less people, excuse me, fewer and fewer people, would be able to <laughs> afford the products that they make, mm. that they themselves produce. And and so this this accumulation then snowballs into a completely unsustainable system. So I think that far from being prophetic, I feel like it's it's really just grounded in reality. And that's really good that, take. Yeah, that was the hard thing I think for me early days of getting feedback right on on the script was that I mean in part because it is a slow start. It's a, it's it, it's intentionally that ground level or like documentary style where you're just living with normal people. It's not like the entry point are normal people in this world, if that makes sense. So they're not heroic uh, in any way necessarily. And, and I think that people, a lot of the feedback at the time was like, it's unrealistic. Um, But I also Mm. remember, I mean, this is like TMI for sure, but like, (laughs) I also remember my, my dad, my son was born, because part of my goal for finishing the script was before my son was born. Um, he was born in, in late July, 2015. And I'd shared the script with my folks and they printed it out to like read basically like on the plane when they came out to visit to first meet 
my son and stay with us. And I remember coming home from work because I live in America and I had to go back to work <laughs> because I ran out of um, vacation days two weeks after he was born. And so I came home from work and my dad was sitting at the table reading the script and he was really teared up and he got up and he gave me this big hug and he was just like, you're so brave. And I'm like, I don't, what do you, <laughs> what do you, what do you, what? Uh, yes. Uh, thank you. Um, and he, d- he just said like, well, that you believe this and you still had a son that you still had a child. Oh, right? damn. Um, and you know that, I mean, that's one of those moments where you're like, but also like, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. You know, and I think that, you know, I, you're starting like you're um, moments away from this at this particular moment. I think by next week you'll you'll get to some of this conversation, um, you know, about about <laughs> kids having kids in in uh, in this world mm. that we have mm-hmm. and things like that. But all these things were definitely like very present for me, and and you know, but I think as you say, Nat, it's it's um, it's always been there. You know, I mean, one of the big big text, you know, uh, novels that, that was hugely influential when I was first starting to research, because all my process starts with a tremendous amount of research, was Jack London's The Iron Heel. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, that blew me away, that book is published in 1908. And in hindsight, you look at it and you're like, he predicted the First World War, he predicted the Second World War, he predicted, like, he seemed to predict, like, the, the capitalist so-called recovery from those wars. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. all of these things. And so when you look back at that stuff and to your point, is it prophetic or is it, or is it just like a math problem? You know? mm. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Math problem is a great way to put it. It has to be, Yeah, you know, it's, it's not a matter of whether somebody believes it, it's going to happen. Science is mm. real. I've heard that's yeah. <laughs> that's what I am led to believe. So, the book itself is done. The script is done. It's just continuing to be produced in its comic form, right? And and I want to talk about your release structure right now. I know on Instagram you've been releasing it in bits and pieces. But interestingly enough, when you go actually to the website, uh, you can read it in chapters that are set up as months. What was the impetus behind that? Uh, marketing. Ha ha ha. Basically, I mean, just just to be honest, it's like, all right, so you're making an indie thing, right? So you're you're doing it independently. You're by yourself, essentially. I mean, by ourselves. And so you have to basically think about when you get to the finish line and the actual book is done, but nobody knows it exists and nobody knows who you are and nobody knows, like nobody's interested. Like nobody's going to read it. So you have to think about ways that you're going to develop an audience meet people, exchange ideas, get feedback, all these kinds of things. And so honestly, what we devised and talked about was basically, all right, we're going to bank pages until we get to the point where if we release two pages a week, uh, essentially, we will be able to finish the book at, on the same pace as it releases out into the world, mm-hmm. right? So basically, we just we had sat on a lot of pages and then we got to the point where we're like, all right, mathematically now, if we're going to continue at the same pace, then we can start releasing pages to a week and, and know that we're going to finish without like, sorry guys, we're quitting for a month and coming back. I mean, knock on wood, we're not done. Oh, like I did. Yeah. And so, and so that's the thing, (laughs) right? Like, you know, it happens, it happens, it happens to the best of us. Mm -hmm. But I think like, that's the thing, right? So 
So you start to, you know, develop, again, a, a broader community and um, conversations and, and meet people. And you start to feel like the end goal is not selling the product, right? The end goal is engaging with people that are interested in the art you're making, mm-hmm. right? And so literally that, that was it. And then, but obviously for both of us, we both like reading things <laughs> as books, right? Or, or at least all at once. And so the website was very much like, this is the pre-book preferred way to read it. And yet Instagram is where the eyes are. Mm-hmm. So we kind of are going to do both things and just say like, Hey, if you want to read like the high res thing, a chapter at a time, go for it. Yeah. I don't know, Kurt, if you have thoughts or the, um, I mean, that was a great way. I, I, I love that answer. I, I, the only thing I would add is that making the chapters uh, as months was kind of always the intention from the very beginning that we, we actually, you know, the story takes place over a series of five months, but also we didn't want the chapters to be marked numerically. We wanted it to be, have a feeling of almost like a, an agricultural, like you're watching like a seed grow kind mm-hmm. of feel like you, you're, you're, it's more about the stages of, you know, reaping and sowing more so than it is about like just counting down to, you know, the, the chapters or whatever, like there is this, this uh, undertone of, you know, agriculture throughout the entire book. So I think making things in months, as opposed to numbers made more sense. I think you guys nailed the like absolutely nailed the organic nature of it. Mm, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It feels real. I mean, we, you know, we talked about uh, earlier, the first chapter being a slow burn, right? And one of the things that I noticed was that there's not a whole lot of dialogue at the very beginning, right? But you had mentioned that, you know, we're just watching these people live their lives, and these people are clearly worried and unhappy. So mm-hmm. who the fuck are they going to talk to about that, right? There's no <laughs> reason realistically for them to be speaking as much as any, you know, like a Superman comic would have somebody just spouting all of their thoughts all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I think it, it really nails the sort of tense realism, of of the whole situation. Thank you. It's it's really it's really impressive. I really really like the book. It's it's very funny because I think like initially you know we, it took it took a while I think for Kurt and I also to find like what you know because you, you on Insta you have to like you write a caption. I mean you don't have to write a caption. We we're writing captions. Sure, you know? sure. And so it was also trying to figure out like what's the tone. And so there's definitely some early jokes about like, you know, I hope you enjoy the silence while it lasts because there's a lot of talking coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so like first chapter is like almost nothing. And then of course there's like a very long speech to finish the second chapter, you know? So we, we make up for it on average. There's probably as much talking as Superman. Um. Right. <laughs> but I think the way that you've weighted it makes it feel very natural. Yeah, and I, I actually love the way the book starts out because it's sort of like, like you said, Nat, like it's so much of is communicated through the silence, but it's it's showing more so than telling. And I just mm-hmm. like always felt like comics are strongest when they can do that. Not that dialogue, I mean, obviously the story would be wouldn't go anywhere without the dialogue. Sure. So we need that. But I just love the way JR wrote it because you're just like it almost feels like you're just like watching people like live their life in the beginning and it's just but it's very very interesting. So part of what we've got going on in the story right is these people who one of them loses their job mm-hmm. and their partner isn't 
happy staying in in their own personal status quo, right? So they 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 move out to somewhere, they move out to the country, right? Can we talk about the the overarching theme of sort of corporate control? What are your thoughts on the the current state of corporate control in particularly in America because I know that's all of our experience and also it's the worst example in the whole world. And and how do you feel you've captured it in the book? I hope that it's the worst example in the whole if world. For real, right? I'd hate to think of worse. Um it's hard, right? I mean, I think that um, in, I'm not. I don't, I'm not the kind of person that's going to let anybody off the hook. But at the same time, we are all captives to it, right? And I and so I think that you know, it, I'd be hard pressed to think of a person other than Jeff Bezos or maybe Elon Musk who have strong pins about. Um, but <laughs> they they are not captives of it but all of their lieutenants and all of their all of the things were, were captive and and i think that that you know writ large i mean some of the things in the book i mean again it might seem preposterous at, at outset there's and i think it's okay to talk a little bit about some spoilers especially Please. if they're they're released pages but you know the fact that like the person who gives up their job and is not fired is not allowed is on a non-compete and therefore can't get another job. Right. And is forced into, into the option of basically manual labor or nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't really feel preposterous, right? Like there, we know that there, you know, I mean, let's just take it for a minute and be silly, right? The WWE Mm -hmm. has a 90, 90 day non-compete with all of their wrestlers. Those of you who follow wrestling, I know that maybe the intersection is small with this with with this. Uh, I feel like audience, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised, uh, <laughs> you know. But we all know it's like they're on ninety day non competes. They're not allowed to, to practice their trade for ninety days. And think about how crazy that is in a sort of individualistic society where we're all going to bootstrap and we're all in charge of our own destiny and blah blah blah. But it's factually inaccurate when you look at those wrestlers that literally have to wait 90 days before they can go work anywhere else mm-hmm. right even though they've been ostensibly fired right mm. and i feel like is that part of everybody's experience no it isn't but it definitely exists and it's and it's it feels omnipresent for those of us who do work in particularly mid to large corporations and it also comes back to all of the things to survive ultimately are tied to our jobs. You know, I can't imagine having all, all the people that have lost their, their employment during the pandemic. It's like during a pandemic, I'm pretty sure that's when you need health insurance, right? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> right? I'm pretty sure that's a one-to-one right there. And so I think like those, it's, it's not even so much that, you know, I, I don't want to like go off the deep end, but I, I would say like, it's not even so much that the job is the problem. It's almost, it's bigger than the job is the problem. It's all of the things attached that are necessarily in our current system attached to the job. It's the organization of production. A job's fine. It's, it's every, exactly what you're saying. It's everything attendant to that job that is not fine. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's hard. I mean, it's also, you know, I'm from uh, an agriculture. I grew up. You know, I was born in 78, so I came up basically like I was not super aware of, of Reagan, but I'm, it's steeped in what Reagan did, mm-hmm. you know, and, and did to my community. You know, like um, when I was younger, we were, we were a dairy farming community. And by the time I was in junior high school, like most of those dairy farms were out of business, 
And the, the community was really hollowed out in lots of ways um, and, and still deals with the, the ramifications of that, uh, the trickle down and, and all those other things um, that occurred. Mm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. I'm sure they were all, they all lost their jobs to places like Tyson and bullshit mm-hmm. like that. Now, before we got on the podcast, right, we were all talking about our corporate jobs, and you both had interesting sort of takes on on the sort of crunch that you've been subjected to in the corporate gigs that you've taken. Kurt, would you like to tell us a little bit about when you receive instruction from on high in a corporate gig, how that places pressure on you to deliver as an artist? Yeah, so, you know, I, I do editorial illustration as kind of a day job. I you know, take jobs as they come. I'm freelance. But when I do get the holy email that comes through, <laughs> it can be a little rigorous. It can be extreme sometimes. Because when I get an article, usually I'm like the last person to see it. So I'm, I'm making art for articles. And they'll often give me any kind of direction that varies from anything from you know, do whatever you want. Like they just will like pass me the article and run. Um, and I'm just like, you know, forced to, to deal with that. Actually, sometimes it's even just, just the headline or sometimes it's the whole article. Other times they'll tell me exactly what they want. So the input can be a lot. And actually we uh, didn't really talk about this yet, but it, it actually is getting a little bit weird too because a lot of like media companies are like really specific about the kind of like ethnicities and diversity that they want to show and kind of things that they don't want to show. And I'm noticing something that's a little bit off-putting, but that magazines, newspapers are now trying to make art that actually omits the person completely so that they don't have to face the question of, diversity or face any feedback from showing or not showing a specific race of person. Wow. So they're just completely omitting the person from the image. So they'll just, this happened and this actually like happened at recently from a really large newspaper that we've all probably read. I've worked with them a couple of times and both times I've worked with them, they completely omit the person. Like I'll come to them with concepts with all kinds of things, you know, and they'll just, they won't say it directly, but they'll basically imply that they want to take all the people out of the image. I find kind of off-putting, to be honest. It's not, I don't, I don't know. We can, that's a whole, maybe another conversation or another podcast, but it's like, I can just, it just seems like that's not the way to handle this. <laughs> you know, let's not yeah. like take the humanity out of everything. Yeah, no, I think you're right. As the issue is that people aren't being empathetic and human enough and so the, right. the solution cannot be to depersonalize it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and even just from a... Well, yeah, I was going to go off on a tangent there, but yeah, you're absolutely right now. I think that's that's right on. Well, let's save it for another episode. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A, a very special episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. JR, you also had a couple of crunch stories with uh, people that you're also not allowed to name. Would you like to share one of your uh, corporate frustrations? I mean, you know, it's it's tough to separate for me because I've been in, in the film industry for, at this point, the vast majority of my career. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just endemic, right? We saw that with IATSE, you know, recently with the, with the strike being threatened. And I think that 
obviously I'm super pro IATSE, you know, as I think most in, in our industry are, you know, frankly, which is great. I think it's, you know, in the film industry, it is a very strange outpost of, of unions in the United States. Uh, for whatever reason, unions have remained reasonably strong within the film industry, which is great. But nevertheless, the working conditions are intense or can be very intense. And, you know, I think you, you, everybody's, you know, that, that paid attention a little bit to that potential strike, you know, heard a lot of the direct stories right there about it's not so much from my perspective, like the lower hanging fruit of like working through lunch or, or missing breaks. Like mm-hmm. those things are bad. They're, they're bad across almost all industries. You know, I think that the thing that makes the filmmaking tough in general is that above the line talent rule the day. And so if above the line, meaning the stars of the thing or the, the big names that, that you know, mm-hmm. right. And so when you work with people, and there are plenty of good examples of people out there that are pro labor or pro collaboration or, you know, those things exist and they are great. And nevertheless, there, there are lots of things, uh, lots of projects that are not run like that. And the, the hours, I mean, Haskell Wexler made a whole documentary literally just about the fact that of how many people, uh, how many people in the film industry die driving home from set because they fall asleep at the wheel right oh man um you know because because the hours are so intense i mean a good friend of mine for instance right his literal first day in the industry his first day on the job did a 27 and a half hour work day and that was literally Mm. his first day ever working in in this part of the industry and of course, it's a little bit gallows humor to be like, he holds the record, right? That record, how, how will you top that record? But the fact that, that's, that you can joke about it and, and, lot, and almost every, I would say that most people I know in the industry have a story like that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think just typifies like when it goes bad, it can go very bad in, in that respect. Mm. Wow. That's really extreme, man. Actually, so I didn't get into the deadlines um, with with my industry, but like often, I think my fastest deadline is ten hours for an article, for an illustration, for an article. But and I've even heard some of the the bigger magazines, and I actually some of them that I'm kind of afraid to work with because of their infamous you know deadlines that they have but i've heard it can be anything up to like as fast as like a couple of hours jesus yeah like i've heard some of the top illustrators in the industry talk about how they've gotten calls and they're like yeah we need something in three hours and they just do it it can be grueling it can be brutal man and i think there's also just a point of pride that like the other part of it is because the culture breeds machismo, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, mm-hmm. of a certain sort of like, I can do it, I can hang. When the reality is that I think we'd all, if we all took a step back, you know, you're not doing your best work in hour 20, right? I mean, mm-hmm. duh, yeah. right? Like, duh. Heck and, no. and so, and so when you, when you know that, why are we doing it? And, and so I think like the, there's just this rule of diminishing returns. I, I don't think anybody, Certainly in the, in the United States, given, given all the, the culture we've all been steeped in and raised in, you know, we're, I, I'm willing to say like 
most of the people in the United States, I'm pretty sure, are pretty hard workers. It's not mm-hmm. a work ethic mm-hmm. issue. They have to be. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do have to be. And to me, it, again, it, it's, it's more about the pressure of knowing that all of these things, all of your safety, like literal physical safety, is tied to your job, having a job. And, and I think that like that pressure is very insidious and clouds and occludes just a lot of the broader discussion about how we could improve the workplace just writ large. You know? mm-hmm. That's so interesting what you're saying, Jar, about kind of this macho machismo. I, I love that idea. I mean, it just seems like that's so what it is. And not only that, but it's like, what is a man besides their work? It's kind of hard to find anything. It's sort of like that becomes almost our identity of what we make and what we yeah. create. I mean, uh, and internalized capitalism is a hell of a drug. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right? I, the ideology of it that's just so seeped into our brains that we can't even part with it when we want to, when we're, when we're not working. You know, it's, there, it's still there. Yeah. I mean, bringing it back a little bit to, to that distant fire, another touchstone in research was, you know, Studs Terkel's working, right? Which is like, no duh, but, but still worth saying out loud, like, you know, that investigation, I think just really pulls the curtain back on like what people's expectations of their jobs are. It's just heartbreaking, right? Because it's with best intent, you know, buying into the system and and maintaining the system is, is all in best intent because the intent there is, Supporting families, caring for each other, you know, safety, all of these kinds of things, you know, for that matter, some of the things that hit hardest with me is like thinking about a legacy. It's very hard to think about, you know, when, when you're a farmer, for instance, right. And, and I, I don't mean to like over romanticize your legacy is, is very clear in certain ways, right. You know, the land, the animals, the crops, the success, you know, the family, the community, the, the real material things that you're providing to your larger community, it just in food and, or, or mm-hmm. clothing or whatever happens to be you're growing, right? Those things are, are pretty, they ladder up very clearly. Mm-hmm. Your legacy at Rando Corporation number nine, <laughs> right, like is, is very hard to figure out. And yet we do want, as humans, it is a thing that lurks in most people. And so part of that legacy and how, for me, things get turned on each other. And again, that's like some of the things that come out in particularly in the latter chapters, you know, of our book is thinking about when you're at Rando Corporation number nine, what's your legacy, right? Mm. You know, and, and particularly, you know, I think as we were talking about before we, you know, we started the pod is thinking about like, it's also your legacy could be really, really negative in terms of, you know, things like, uh, what do you call it? Oh my goodness. What's the, uh, inextinguishable fire. Inextinguishable what's the, fire. What's the name? What's the name of that stuff they used in NAM? And it's like, a oh, oh, napalm. All of a sudden. Oh, napalm. napalm. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So like, so like a Dow chemical, they made napalm and, you know, arguably many of the people working on it had no idea that's the thing they were making. Right. So the earliest, ideas of the script and the story are about trying to meld this idea of like the early 20th century as industrialization really takes root. And you've got like people like Frank Little that are union agitators that are 
trying to create unions and carve out better working conditions as things become incredibly extreme, right? In like the first 20 years, the 20th century, in particular, you know, with mining and, and all these other things. And that's like very direct labor that's very, that's very, at the time was very visible. Mm-hmm. But then in the latter half, like around World War II and beyond, we start to see this invisible degradation of labor where individuals are taken advantage of because they can't back up far enough to see what it is that they they're building. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They don't have the mm-hmm. context, right? So mm-hmm. they're building one building block and somebody else in another room is building another building block and et cetera. And then when those building blocks come together, they're napalm. And then suddenly you realize down the road that that's your legacy and all mm-hmm. of the things that that does to you potentially that's, that are so destructive upon that realization. And so to me, like that was also part of it is like, you've got Paul and Vera, these two main characters that, that Pinkerton Bay is that napalm manufacturer, Mm -hmm, basically mm -hmm. that their work, their, the things that they're building in their day job, they've come to realize are, are not, not for good. Right. They're, They're not creating good outcomes in the world. And at the same time, then we have, when they move back to their, you know, rural community, you have the very, very manifest uh, mistreatment of, of labor there. To me, it's like part of it is like, how do you bring those two things together, right? Both of those things are happening today, both in the United States and globally, but they're not visible. And part of that is the media, part of those mm-hmm. other things. But there's lots of reasons why it's not visible. But how do you make it visible? And so part of it is like, why is it sci-fi? That's why. Because you can make it very visible in sci-fi, mm-hmm how those things can collide. Yeah. Sci-fi is literally forward thinking. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, that's so fascinating. You know, that, that that makes me think of two, sort of three, two things. The first one is is a singular thing, and the second one is two-pronged. I know I've mentioned this before about that distant fire, but you bring it up again, is that there is really just such a display of an innate understanding of the arguments that Marx puts forth in that distant fire. However, you know, uh, presented fictionally, he talks about the alienation of labor, which is, mm. you know, somebody makes building block A or, or a WUG or a widget. They don't know what the hell it does, mm. but they pass it on to the second person who doesn't know what the hell it's for, but they know what to attach to it, right? And then nobody sees the end result. And so nobody feels like they have any stake in the outcome. And naturally, that's soul-crushing. Regardless of pay, regardless of the actual sort of remuneration for the task, people need a philosophically and spiritually fulfilling outcome of what they do, right? They have to make sense Mm -hmm. of their daily lives. And so they get alienated from their labor in this system that we've created. And to kind of put another sort of real-world spin on that, my old neighbor, my old next-door neighbor used to be part of this. I have another... A uh, friend at at work who's about to leave and be part of this 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 new world, aerospace. Right, aerospace is one of the most innocuous sounding industries. Like, oh, we make things go up and fast. Right, <laughs> like that sounds great. That sounds rad as hell. Sign me up. Except when you actually look into it, like ninety nine percent of aerospace, regardless of whether or not the engineers know they're doing it, is used for military application. It's used to bomb brown people. Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. people don't understand that. You know, uh, I, I was just at a, 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 God, it was horrible, an awful engineer party from 
like with the, my neighbor put on and uh, all these people worked for <laughs> Northrop Grumman and couldn't hold a fucking conversation. But oh, man. yeah, I know. Horrible. But they, uh, they work killer. in a building with no windows because they can't, there absolutely cannot be any kind of espionage, right? No uh, windows whatsoever. They have a courtyard where they can bring like their sack lunches or whatever. I'm sure they actually have like quite a really nice, uh, like commissary or something because it's the sweet milk of the government paying for everything they do. But they have no idea that – I mean they might they might have some idea, but they're basically discouraged from thinking about the end result. So I had a good transition, right? A good transition. I thought about this, right? Uh, we talked about crunch time and about getting things done uh, just as the, as the suits want you to, right? So – I think the one, the, right? I think one of the the comic book writers who's who's famous for just doing that is Scott Lobdell or Lobdell. I'm not sure how you actually say his name. I don't know if you guys ever read anything from him, but I think he's a, I think he was one of that coterie of like failed journalists who just went into comic books because he could meet a deadline, right? <laughs> I hate this man. I hate this man's work. He's very problematic. Just a piece of shit. But it it, it transitions us into comic books so i know that kurt you're a big x-men guy right i used to be yeah yeah that was the first kind of book that i read when i was a kid yeah what got you into x-men was it the cartoon you know what what was first you know i uh, i'm having trouble remembering if it was the cartoon or if it was the comics first you know it was probably a melding of the two but I think I was more, maybe a little bit more Jim Lee. I can't even really mm. remember who the artists were. You know, and the crazy thing is I have, all right, I'm such a visual person that I wasn't even really reading them a lot of the times. Nice. Like I would just like flip through and look at them. Like that's just like how I learned to draw literally was just like looking at the books and probably wasn't until I started getting more into more indie books like later on in my life that I started actually like diving into the the stories as like a as a as a whole but so I'm actually unfamiliar with Scott Lobdell so did he what did he like write so he wrote a lot of X-Men is that what you're saying the only thing I know about him I mean I I'm sure that I've read plenty of Scott Lobdell sure. comics I just can't place them other than the Red Hood Oh I didn't realize he Red, wrote Red Hood uh... I think he read wrote Red Hood and I mean I don't I don't remember who it was that like created Red Hood, but I think I'm pretty sure he wrote some Red Hood. Right. So right. Um, I I don't have Wikipedia in front of me, but he definitely read re- he wrote Red Hood and the Outlaws, Volume One, numbers zero through eighteen, thirty <laughs> thirty two through forty, and the annual number two. Damn, off the dome, right? Yeah, it just came to me. Um, I, yeah. JR, you were not you and I were talking a little earlier. You said that most of what you've been reading recently has been comics. What are you reading recently? Um, well, let me see. Lots of stuff. I, I started a reread of The Inkle before Taika was announced. I know it's like maybe heretical to say I'm excited about Taika directing The Inkle, but I'm very excited about that. I'm mm-hmm. super psyched about that. Well, just the fact that anyone's making it is exciting, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I checked my list. The first is Paranormal uh, by Dan Christensen that just came out via Kickstarter, uh, like the complete works. I think it came out in France a number of years ago, but like this is the like color version that Black Eye put out. It's so rad. I'm like, as I mentioned before, I'm a huge Grendel fan, and I feel like this is 
in many ways like a spiritual no I was getting it's not ancestor it's the reverse some fancy word who fucking mm-hmm. knows uh, but it's it has that like noir twist that I just absolutely I'm like I'm I love 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 noir I mean it's a huge huge thing for me and and I think that like this really nails it it basically the premise is essentially that the main character is this guy who's been in jail he gets out of jail at the very beginning unbeknownst to the police he's a supervillain he was arrested for other reasons and was only away for a short period of time he gets out of jail to find that like his team of supervillains has basically disbanded the the good guys are missing in action too you know the police put the squeeze on him because of some things that happen that sort of start to reveal that maybe he's this this guy formerly known as the ogre right and it sort of spins out from like the police putting the squeeze on him to help them solve this other crime and it so it has has some you know superhero ish elements but has primarily noir elements i cannot wait for dan to do more paranormal or not paranormal stories i know that he's doing sounds like he's maybe doing a prequel now or something like that but it's if you're a grendel fan it's awesome obviously i recommend grendel and then the, the other stuff that I've been really, really enjoying is Josh Pet, Pettinger. Pettinger, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's awesome. Like, he's doing some, some new stuff that's like very, I don't want to say farcical, but like it's the one he's putting out right now on Instagram is very much a critique, I presume, of things like Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it sort of imagines like a farcical future time we're all somehow employed by somebody like Bezos. Right. Um, but, but he has lots of different stories that do different things that I just, I love how he really blends a kind of like very grounded in some ways, realism with these like leaps of of fantasy in some ways, you know, um, there's this great, great story that, that, you know, he has that's available on his Instagram that you can read that it starts as like, a, a tiny, tiny bit of like a, a murder mystery that then winds up in this very strange but awesome place. I don't want to spoil anything because so, some of his, the way he works with punchlines in a way, I mean, I don't know if he described them in, in that way, but I just think it's fantastic. It really makes me happy. So, yeah, I mean, th- those are two things. And plus the end call uh, that I've been rereading. Yeah, obviously other, other things as well. Can I borrow that paranormal JR? That yeah, sounds, oh, yeah. yeah, it sounds so Absolutely. good. It's yeah. so good. It's just, I mean, part of it is it's like that wonderful feeling of like, there's a, a familiarity of like, these are the things that I really love, but it done in a new, different way. Like it's very fresh and yet it still feels like that big, like it's, the, it's some of the reasons why you kind of come back years later to like X-Men, for instance, right? You know, we all have fond mm. memories of, you know, whether it's Claremont or Jim Lee or, or others. And it's nice to check in on what's going on, right? And and not to say, like, Dan's not doing that exactly, but it is that feeling of, like, these are born out of similar inspirations, right? I, I love all of the things that he's clearly inspired by, and I love the his personal twist that he's putting on onto the things. That's really cool, man. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. That yeah. is awesome. I really want to read it too. That sounds incredible. And not to, they, we might, is that the same one that we might be publishing with? 
The same, Perhaps. The same, Perhaps. same, same I, publisher. Yeah, that, yeah Black yeah. Eye. Like, I, I really love what they're doing. I mean, I think that's, um, you know, again, like we, we talked about earlier, like thinking about community and like, what are the end goals and things like that. And I think that, you know, I think that Michelle at, at Black Eye is, is really fostering a great sense of community in, in the way that he's approaching publishing and how he thinks about building, you know, one release building to the next and, and a collection of artists helping each other. And, and there are other places like that too. I think that, you know, like, I think like strangers fanzine is like that. Like, I, I really, really like how many, how often you see, cause I mean, look, my growing up moment was like, everybody wanted to be discord, right? Discord records. Like, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. course you do, because that just seems like, of course, that's what you just, you want a house where everybody hangs out and everybody plays great music and every band is great. And also, oh, by the way, everybody owns their own stuff and they're somehow putting it out and, 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 you know, making a living, doing great art and, so it's like, yeah, of course you want to be Discord. And now I feel like in some ways you start to see more and more, it also is coming out of necessity that artists collaborate in, in distribution models and in, in publishing models and other ways, you know, because as much as I'd, you know, absolutely be on board to be like, hey, Fantagraphics, let's do mm-hmm. something together. You know, it's also not practical. It's not feasible, you know. Um, and so if you want to continue to make, which I think most of us do, you, you have to find other ways to do it. So I think it's great. Well, yeah, so Black Eye, Strangers, there's some others that are really that are really cool too. Let's talk about the fact that you guys are trying to get published after you finish the story. Tell me about that. Yeah, we definitely want it to, I mean, the whole idea was for it to be printed. JR and I just, we love physical comics. Like, that's like our preferred way to read them. Absolutely. Although, lately, I there are some comics that actually look really good on the huge ipad like it's true like even though i hate reading it on that format like it it can look good but there's just nothing like holding a book Mm -hmm. so yeah we we definitely have always wanted it to be printed now who it will be like to publish it and like how we're going to go about it we're still kind of trying to figure that out we might there's just there's a lot of options we may do kickstarter we might do so, yeah, right. Right now, it's a dollar and a dream. You know, like sure. I, I think we've yeah. we've we've submitted around uh, you know some places, but we've also had yeah. some great conversations with some other places. I mean, my hope is like, look, <laughs> I, I was about to say nobody goes into the comics for the money. I, I feel like there was a moment in the '90s where that wasn't mm-hmm. true. Yeah, with um, Image Comics. <laughs> right? so, yeah, I can't say that that's it's always been true. I mean, ultimately, it's like you just want to share your story and you know, you're working on and have conversations like this. Right. And I, I don't mean like literally on a podcast. I mean, like <laughs> have conversations with other people and with that, that are, that are reading your story and you're reading their stories. And, and so to me, obviously like the goal is for sure to have a physical book at the end of it. But I think, you know, even more important than the physical book for me is to connect with other artists or, or, or readers or whomever that has an interest and in, and just have just chop it up for a little bit and, and talk about it and make a connection. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, Fantagraphics, if you're listening, please contact <laughs> us. That's right. Yeah, we uh, we would love to get a reply back about drawn and quarterly. You're yeah. awesome too. Dark yeah, Wars, you're all you know. Yeah, we're not playing favorites here. I'm, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, do you guys want to give your final pitches? Let everyone know what you're up to and, and how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, you can find us at That Distant Fire on Instagram. It's also thatdistantfire.com where you can read uh, you know, all of the, the currently published stuff. You know, we're, we're in the middle of Chapter 3 right now. 
uh, of, of five chapters likely publishing, you know, uh, online probably through early summer. It's probably when it'll wrap up something like that. Yeah. And I hope you enjoy it. Reach out, talk to us. We like being talked to. Yeah. Right now, my main thing, like 90% of my time I'm working on this book, that distant fire. So yeah, you could definitely follow me at, at Kurt Merlot on, on Instagram and all the other places. And then at that distant fire, as JR said, but yeah, like I, I'm like trying to put out a newsletter too. So I, I'm just kind of getting fed up with the way that Instagram is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's not even like a superficial reason. It's literally like I just want the people who follow me to be able to see my work. And it just doesn't seem like Instagram wants to let that happen. So I'm trying to find more direct ways to like reach the people who are interested in my art. I'm literally like putting my feelers out there. Like if there's a new platform or anything, like I totally want to try it. But right now, the only thing I could think of is doing a newsletter. So, right. So I'm going to start doing a newsletter soon. But in the meantime, like Instagram will always be a part of our, our marketing strategy. And so anyway, we're at those places and please, uh, like JR said, reach out, say hi. We're always down to talk. So yeah, and I, I think, you know, I don't know if this goes without saying, but, like, I, I think the intent is also to, like, it's always going to exist, quote-unquote, for free online, right? Right. You know, and, and I think, like, that's also a thing that I really respect. Like, Tilly Walden, for instance, she's, like, she has some of her books completely up online, and we, we, we looked a lot, actually, at some of her work to figure out how, what makes an enjoyable reading experience online. You know, right. her, work is, her work is fantastic, so that's another person I'd recommend like on yep. a sunbeam and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. To me, it's also one of these things where it's like, again, the, the end goal is just, is the aspiration is to make a great thing. And, and the next step after that is to share it. And, and, you know, so that's that. So come find us. All right. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Dude, thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. Absolutely. I'll have you back. I'm sure. Excellent. Anytime, man. I just want to say thank you once again to Kurt and JR. It was a real blast having them on Collective Action Comics. I'd also like to say thank you to all the Patreon supporters who've made this episode possible. It's it's only slightly easier to make these than it is to make the regular season episodes. You don't realize how much editing goes into an interview until you actually do it. So thank you everyone again, and go out and follow That Distant Fire and Black Eye Books on Instagram, and sign up for Black Eye's newsletter. You won't be disappointed. And just remember, America is actually the bad guy. <laughs>